Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin Lagore, and welcome to another episode of the Skywatcher What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, uh, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Um, welcome. Happy Friday. Uh, it's new moon weekend, and of course, it's raining where I'm at, at least. So hopefully someone gets out to some dark skies this weekend and enjoy that last little tidbit of spring. Um, note real quick, the time does change this weekend. So uh, for the rest of us who are not feeling, uh, just remember the time is changing this weekend. So the webcast will shift um, back to its normal times for you. It's still 10 a.m. Pacific, but just remember that there's a time change coming up. So I know that confused some people when it happened in fall, so just a, a heads up right there. So anyway, it, like I said, it is Friday. Uh, my name is Kevin, and uh, I will be your host for the What's Up webcast. If you've never joined us before, we do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. We cover everything from what's up into the nighttime sky to helpful tips and tricks on astronomy uh, as far as equipment, imaging, visual, whatever we feel like doing. And of course, the last Friday of every month, we do a, uh, a special guest speaker. So um, right now, if you really like what you see here, you wanna be more involved, you wanna see what's coming up, we're about to post probably the next several months of What's Up webcast um, episodes, uh, scheduling them at least. So if you subscribe to our channel right now, and thank you, we did hit the 3000 mark for subscribers. So thanks to everyone who's uh, supported the channel, been a part of it. We really appreciate it here. Um, but if you want to keep that going, uh, go ahead and subscribe to the channel. If you want to, uh, if you have an idea for something that we should take a look at, go ahead and uh, email us at support at skywatcherusa.com and just title it, What's Up? and we'll be happy uh, to take a look at that. Um, so, today we are talking about our Maxitoff series of telescopes. Uh, this is also known as the SkyMax series of telescopes. And we have a wide range of Maxitoff uh, telescopes in our product lineup, and that's what we're gonna be looking at today in detail. I'll be giving you some uh, insight on some of those uh, models as well. Um, we've used them all, uh, maybe some helpful things if you're considering one or if you just got one or if you own one. So um, be happy to uh, go in through that as well. So uh, let's get started. So the Maxitoff design. Now there's a lot of different designs of telescopes on the market nowadays and it's it can be hard keeping up with all different kinds of things like that but the Mac is one of the more common ones that we do see of course in the Cassegrain world the popular ones you see are the Schmidt Cassegrains those are widely available from you know Mead and Celestron um, there's been some other ones in the past like Takahashi has made a Schmidt Cassegrain but then we have the Maxitoff Cassegrains which is a different design from the Schmidt altogether and we're going to talk about that right now actually. So this is the way a Maxitoff works. So it has a corrector plate, it is a Cassegrain, well when we're talking about a Maxitoff Cassegrain there are different styles of Maxitoffs which we'll also talk about today. Um, this is a general 
diagram of a Maxitoff Cassegrain. Up front, we have a meniscus corrector. In the back, we have a primary. It's generally spherical. Um, and then you have a secondary mirror. And then that's, that's pretty much it. So light comes in from the sky, passes through the corrector, heads on back to the primary mirror, reflects off the primary to the secondary, and then back through the baffle in a, in a center core through the primary mirror and out to the Cassegrain focus in the rear of the telescope. That's pretty standard for Cassegrains um, in general. So, but that is how the Mac works. And I actually have props today. This is a Maxitoff uh, corrector. This is off of our 127 uh, model. I did take the baffle off the back, so that's why this is still there. Um, but that is a Maxitoff meniscus uh, corrector lens right there. You can see how thick that actually is. That's about an inch thick for, for that one. So, But let's talk a little bit about the actual design. So the Maxitoff was actually invented by Dmitry Maxitoff in 1941. And it's composed up of a, like I said, spherical primary, negative meniscus corrector, which is up at the front, and a secondary, which is on this particular design of Maxitoff is part of the corrector itself. Now, the type of Max that Skywatcher sells and what we've worked with is called a Gregory Maxitoff Cassegrain. It's also known as a Spot Mac. Um, it's just how the design is. Uh, there are other variations of the Maxitoff uh, out there. They still use that meniscus um, corrector. Let me bring that up here real quick again. They still use the meniscus corrector, but generally on a Gregor Gregory Mac or a Mac, Spot Mac, the the actual secondary is actually the same optical surface as the meniscus is. It's just an aluminum or reflective coated. Uh, portion of the back of the meniscus so it's actually still part of the same optical curve there's no way to collimate the secondary because it's all part of one optical element so it's basically two optical elements in one you have the corrector and then an aluminized spot on the back so that's how that generally works now there are other designs out there where the secondary can actually be collimated there's a hole in the corrector where you can actually collimate the secondary. There's different kinds of stuff for that as well. So um, I don't actually know the F ratios of our primary off the top of my head. Um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure, um, to be totally honest on that. Never really come up. Uh, so what does a Maxitoff actually do? Um, it corrects for coma and color aberrations uh, is what the meniscus generally does. Gives you a really nice sharp refractor-like uh, field, but in a much more, comp much more compact design. Uh, most of the Maxitoffs use a spherical optical system. Um, spheres are probably the easiest, uh, you know, uh, shape to make in optics. Uh, usually when you're starting to do an optic, it starts off as a sphere, and then then you get the more elaborate designs moving into the parabola and eventually the hyperbolic uh, mirrors at that point. So, But if you make something that's spherical, it's very easy to produce. It's not a lot of effort on a machine to produce even a fast sphere because it just has to be easy sphere. And that makes collimation really easy, 
easy as well because spheres are very easy to collimate. Um, as you get more elaborate, it gets more difficult to maintain that collimation because of how critical collimation should be as that shape progresses. So parabolics require a little bit more finesse when you're collimating them, especially fast ones. Like you've seen a lot of these daubs nowadays. And then you get to hyperbolics, what you see a lot in a Ritchie Cretion telescope. Those are very difficult to collimate because of the hyperbolic mirrors in there. So you have to be really careful. So, uh, but spheres are very easy to work with, very easy to produce. So that's a, a real reason you see a lot of max out there is because they're relatively easy to produce and they give you a nice compact package with a nice focal length uh, to work with um, out there. So with that being said, that is how the Mac works and that is a little bit about the particular design that Skywatcher currently uses for our Maxitoff designs. Um, let's take a look into our actual SkyMax series. Now we make a variety of sizes. Um, like I said, we utilize the popular Gregory Spot Mac design for all of ours. Um, this allows for a very sharp refractor-like image. Um, these are great for planets and the moon and some of the brighter deep sky objects. But they give you that real nice sharp pinpoint uh, look that you're looking for. Uh, they, the really nice thing about a Mac is that it gives you a long focal length to work with. So that means you have a big image scale right off the bat. That's one of the problems, uh, I wouldn't say it's a problem, it's just one of the drawbacks. Um, when you get like a little Newtonian, or like we have some of our tabletop daubs or some of our refractors, they're only 600 millimeters in focal length. So for some people, when you wanna get a nice view of the planets or the moon, it takes a lot of magnification to get the image scale to be big enough to where it might be impressive uh, for some people. Um, a Mac doesn't have that problem. It has a long focal length. All of our Macs are at least 1200 millimeters in focal length and more um, for the Mac Cassegrains. And for such a tiny little package, it gives you a really nice uh, long focal length to work with. So that means planets can be a little bit bigger, a little bit more impressive as far as image scale goes. Um, the moon looks really good in them. And then some of the deep sky objects just appear bigger because you have more focal length to work with. Now, um, our Gregory design of Macs come in five sizes currently. So we have the 90, three and a half inch. We have the 102, which is four inch, 127, which is a five inch, 150 or six inch, and the 180 at seven inch. So those are our five current aperture sizes available for the Maxitoff series. And that pretty much allows it to fit any kind of observing you want to do or particular need that you want to do. And we'll elaborate a little bit more as we move into breaking down each model. I'll kind of tell you what I like to use them for and hopefully that might help some consideration if you're looking at them or maybe if you already own one, give you some ideas. I uh, just want to go over some of the features um, on our SkyMax series. I don't want today to sound like a big advertisement for these. It's just kind of an in-depth overview of particularly about this particular series that might be helpful um, or maybe you want to know about them. So all of our SkyMax Maxitovs have a fully multi-coated uh, front meniscus corrector. Um, fully multi-coated if you're not aware, especially in the telescope world. You want to find something that's fully multi-coated. Um, 
And what that means is all optical surfaces are coated. And that really prevents any uh, strange reflections that might occur that are unwanted. It also helps with light throughput through the glass. Um, but you definitely want fully multi-coated is what you are looking for on any modern day optic because that just means the entire optical element is coated the way you want it. Um, usually when we're talking fully multi-coated, we're only talking about lenses because lenses have two optical sides to them at least where mirrors and such only have that one optical surface. So um, anything with a lens, you probably want to have uh, fully multi-coated uh, optics. Now, another thing that we've got on the SkyMax series um, on our optics are, and this is actually true for all the Skywatcher mirrors because we use the same aluminum coating on all the mirrors. Uh, we have a 94% reflectivity coating on all of our mirrors, which is actually pretty good. Uh, that means 94% of the light that hits the mirror is reflected. Um, there are some uh, more custom uh, optic shops that can do 96%, so you're getting a little bit more. Um, and mass production 94 is pretty darn good. Um, the only thing that's really higher than that is a dielectric coating at 99%. However, you don't generally want to coat a primary mirror in a dielectric coating um, for the most part. Kind of depends on the optical system that you're using. But the problem with dielectric coatings is they're basically stuck on the optical surface. The only way to get them off is to grind them off of there. Um, you know, something like a diagonal or something that's got a sealed tube, that's not a big deal. You know, you could probably do a dielectric coating on the Max as well because their primaries are very rarely exposed to the elements. Um, but you will get a higher reflectivity coating um, on that as well. So, and then uh, we get this question a lot. We have a lot of people who are worried about the coatings. Um, and I can understand that. Um, if you have a Dobsonian, for example, most coatings on a Dobsonian mirror from regardless of who you get it from, on average can go for about 10 to 15 years before that coating starts to fade. And then the mirror has to be, it has to be stripped of the coating and then recoated by uh, an optical shop or something like that. That's different because Mirrors like that are exposed to the elements regularly. That primary mirror is always going to be exposed to the air and moisture in the air and wherever you're at, it's going to it takes a hit. So I have a one of my mirrors right now is getting recoded for one of my Dobsonian personal Dobbs. I'm getting that recoded. Um, it just requires that to be done. However, um, on a closed system like a Schmidt or a Mac or something like that their mirrors aren't exposed to those elements very, very much. So you probably won't have to worry about coatings for probably the entire time that you own it. Um, they are made to work really well and last for quite a long time. So that's the whole point. These are tools that are meant to be used routinely out in the air all the time. So the coatings on these telescopes are very hard. They're very, they're very difficult to damage these coatings too. And I coatings can fail. That's just something that happens. There's not a lot that can be done. It's a very rare situation. If for whatever reason you have one of our telescopes and the coating is giving you issues, just give us a call and we'll take care of it from there. But um, that's very, very rare. Um, but it's something that you should be noted that 
can happen when owning telescopes. So, but our coatings are very difficult to damage. Um, they can be very easy cleaning. Even the meniscus correctors, those are multi-coated. They're very difficult to damage. Um, you'd have to go in and chip the glass or scrub it with steel wool or something super drastic to really damage those coatings. So just an FYI. So, so those are just some of the basic features of the optics in our SkyMax series. I just wanted to get that out there because we do get a lot of questions about them and hopefully that's been enlightening a little bit or give you some knowledge on it. So. Now let's break down. I do know there's some questions there. Um, between like an eight inch Schmidt Cass and a seven inch Mac. We'll, we'll talk about that. I'll maybe you can bring up my calculator here and see what we can do. There it is. Um, real quick, this is a calculator that I use to calculate all kinds of stuff. Um, it's just something that I've built. I use it all the time. And just while we're talking about this real quick, I wanted to bring this up. So someone's asking about an eight inch versus the seven inch um, Mac. And just while we're talking Mac optics in general, let's, let's just talk about it real quick. Um, so one big thing that we're talking about eight inch Schmidt cast versus a seven inch Mac is the, the eight inch is gonna give you a little bit more punch than the seven. So let's go in here real quick. Um, the eight inch is gonna give you a 31% uh, brighter image because it's got more light gathering power so we're on this bar right here FYI right in here so we have our 8 inch telescope versus our 7 inch telescope that gives us a 31% difference between um, an 8 inch and 7 inch telescope so that's gonna be one thing there now the thing about our 180 is it has a smaller secondary um, than that of a Schmidt Cassegrain. And I don't remember, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I might just wait until we're later in the webcast. Actually, yeah, let's just do that real quick. We'll come back to this real quick, I promise. When we get to the seven inch model, which is just here in a little bit, we'll, we'll talk about it. So, um, cause I got to look up some stuff real quick and it makes more sense to do that when we're on the seven inch. So we'll get back to this conversation in just a minute. So just to get started, our smallest Mac in our series is the SkyMax 90. It's a 90 millimeter Maxitoff, three and a half inch aperture. Um, the F ratio is 13.9, so rather long, but that's pretty typical for a Mac. That's uh, 1,250 millimeter focal length to work with. Um, and it's only three and a half pounds, so it's really lightweight. Um, it comes with a travel bag, 25 millimeter, 10 millimeter eyepiece. They're inch and a quarters. Uh, 90 millimeter star diagonal and a red dot finder and it has an inch and a quarter uh, mounting foot on the bottom of it so it works on a photo tripod um, the 90 is a really great grab-and-go telescope I've gone on trips with it I like using it on my star adventure with the deck bracket it's a great little telescope this little travel bag um, is actually has more room in it than the 90 needs so, you know, I can put extra eyepieces in there or some higher end eyepieces if you want to take something bigger. Um, but the 90 is a really fun little grab and go scope. You can see the rings of Saturn with it, the moons of Jupiter, the bands on Jupiter, um, some of the bright deep sky objects. It's just a fun little telescope to take with you. It is only a 90 millimeter and it is a long 90 millimeter. So if you're hunting deep sky objects, it's probably not going to be the best telescope for something like that. It's going to be a little dim. 
um, for the, the fainter deep sky objects. But, you know, for the bright stuff like M13, the Orion Nebula, uh, Andromeda, all the major planets and the moon, it's a perfect tiny little telescope. And it's so small. I mean, it's it's not much bigger than my hand, um, really, but it's a fun little telescope to use. Um, so that's the 90 millimeter. Um, the next one up from there is the 102, which is our four inch model, probably one of the more popular ones. You are, well, I feel like once you get to four inch, things start to get a little bit more serious. Um, it's just, you get more aperture out of it. So, and it's not much bigger than the 90 is, but there's a couple features about it that I prefer personally about it. Um, it is 4.6 pounds, it's a little heavier. Um, you still get the travel bag, the two eyepieces, the 90 degree, the accessories are the same. But this one has a Vixen style mounting foot on the bottom of it, so it becomes much more usable on a wider range of mounts. Um, the 90 just has this little foot that's got a couple quarter 20 holes on the bottom. Um, the 102 has some quarter 20 holes on the bottom of the mounting foot as well, but it is not, um, it's not everything, not everything's there. So, um, so this is a great one to actually work with um, in the future. Um, it works really well with a lot of different mounts, AZ-GTI, AZ-GTE, um, even if you have like a small EQ2, EQ1, whatever, works great on that. So um, that's a fun one to work with at that point. And the nice thing about this is because it's a four inch, um, you're now talking about a 28% difference in light gathering over the 90. So your images in a 102 are gonna be 28% brighter than that of a 90 millimeter. So something to consider when talking bigger. Now the next one up there, this is probably the most popular scope we have in the lineup, is the 127. The 127 is gonna be bigger, so that's something to keep in mind. It's, it's bigger, it's heavier, it's 9.7 pounds, it's almost twice the weight of a 102. Um, but now you're at a five inch aperture, and this one, you're starting to get a little bit more serious about what you can do with it. Um, it's an f12.1, so 1540 millimeters is your focal length. Um, on this particular one, you get a two inch eyepiece, a two inch diagonal with an inch and a quarter adapter, and an actual optical finder. It's a 30 millimeter, uh, six by 30 optical finder on the 127. It does have a Vixen style mounting foot on the bottom with several quarter 20s, so you can use it on a photo tripod. Um, but this one's a lot of fun. This is like my grab and go scope. I like having all that aperture. A five inch aperture is pretty serious at that point, but um, it's not much bigger and it still fits on a lot of the basic mounts um, at this point. The nice thing about this one, the 127 on up, is the rear cell has Schmidt Cassegrain threads on the back of it and we have a two inch visual back. So any accessories roughly the 127's got some clearance issues for any focuser on the rear. Um, but it does have a Schmidt Cassegrain thread, which means you could put a Schmidt reducer on the back of it. You can put the two inch uh, stuff on the back of it. Um, so it's got more flexibility. Now, I do wanna put something in here really quick. Um, accessories on the SkyMax series are going to vary on your region. Now, Skywatcher here in the US and Canada this is how we have our telescope situated. 
if you go anywhere else you want to check with your dealer or the distributor for that particular region and they will tell you how they have the telescope configured in your area there have been some people who say why don't the 127s in the u.s come with a travel bag we don't sell it with a travel bag reason being is you get the accessories you get the big eyepiece the big diagonal and the finder the travel bag only fits the tube and it's a tight fit in the travel bag but you still have to worry about your accessories that you get with it and those don't fit in the bag with the telescope so it's kind of here nor there at this point so that's why we don't sell it with the travel bag um you can get a photo bag mine sits in like a little photo travel bag for a camera it fits fine i can fit all my stuff in there so um but just real quick it's come up before um, I know this video will be saved and it's global that people can see it. Check with your distributor about what accessories come with it in your local area. Now, another thing, we're just talking about the SkyMax series as the optical tubes themselves. Um, for those who are looking for these on the AZ-GTIs, because we do sell the 102 and the 127 on the AZ-GTI mounts, we had to take weight into consideration for those tubes, especially the 127. Um, because it's starting to push the limit of the AZ-GTI. Um, those do not come with the big diagonal and the optical finders. Um, they have an inch and a quarter back on them. They have inch and a quarter accessories and red dots to keep the weight down. So if that two inch stuff is really important to you, maybe look at getting a SkyMax optical tube and pairing it with the mount of choice rather than the kits. Just a heads up. Uh, Cameron's got a real quick question. How's vignetting on a Mac 127 with a 40 millimeter eyepiece? I haven't found it to be a problem. I've used it with a Panoptic 41. It, it looked okay to me. I've never really had any complaints about it. So it's, it's done well from my experience. Um, the 127, like I said, that's my grab and go setup. I actually use it on a star adventure. It's probably the biggest tube you want to put on a star adventure. It's not super ideal as far as rigidity goes. Um, I do need two counterweights on the bar. Um, so it's a little wonky when I've got this telescope on the star adventure. It does hold it. It does track. It's perfectly usable. But if there's any breeze or any shake anywhere, you know about it. So that's just something to remember when you're pushing a star adventure up on its weight capacity limitations. Um, and the 127 does it, but it does work as long as you're willing to understand where, where the limits are. So just a heads up. The next one in the series is the SkyMax 150. This is a six inch aperture Mac. It's actually the fastest optically of the Macs. It's F12, which, yeah. Um, it's 1800 millimeters, it's 14 pounds. Um, when you get to the 150, you really have to start considering the mount a little bit more. Um, it's not gonna work on the small trackers, it's not gonna work on the AZ-GT series or anything similar to that. Maybe you have like a Ioptron Skyguider or something small. When you get to a 150 Mac, it's you have to step up to a true mount at that point like our eqm 35 or a celestron avx or whatever something in that category is what you're going to need for a telescope like this this is a six inch cassegrain it's got some heft to it 
the correctors on these get thick and heavy. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so something to consider when going to the bigger models. Um, this does have the two inch 28 millimeter eyepiece, 90 degree star diagonal, two inch with the inch and quarter adapter. And now we have a nine by 50 finder to help complement that larger aperture. Uh, it still has the Vixen style mounting foot with quarter 20 holes. You can mount a secondary like D plate on the bottom of there if you need it for larger mounts. Um, it does have the Schmidt Cassegrain threads on the back so you can use, uh, this one actually has enough clearance on the back where you can put thread on one of those rear Crayford dual speed focusers. You could put one of those on the back um, on this model. Or you could actually use the uh, F63 focal reducers from a Schmidt Cassegrain. I've tried that, it, it actually works. Um, I don't know how well the correction actually is for imaging, but it worked um, for the most part. Now, because it is a six inch over the five inch that we were talking about earlier, you're getting a 40% brighter image when you step up to a six inch. Um, if you're looking to do, if you're interested in the moon and planets, but you still wanna do some deep sky and you've got at least a decent size mount, the 150 is probably what you wanna start thinking about because with that 150 millimeter aperture, you're now getting uh, big enough to really think about it. I'm gonna shut this off real quick. I just wanna pull my calculator up here so we can actually look at this. There we go. So here's my calculator that you all like. So let's just look at this really quick. So we're talking about our six inch telescope. So that's our big aperture. Let me go down here real quick. This is our six inch aperture versus our five inch, 44% uh, difference in light gathering power. That's a pretty big difference. Um, now we're talking 150 millimeter. Let's do the calculations for that. So there's our limitations right there. Um, you have a limiting magnitude of 13.3 on a six inch telescope. So this six inch Mac, you're talking about being able to see all the major Messier objects with that aperture at, at magnitude 13. That's pretty much doable in a dark sky for all 110 Messier objects. So 150 millimeter telescope, you're actually really starting to think a little bit more about what you can get out of the nighttime sky. The five inch does a nice job. Let's just look at that real quick. You're, you're down to about magnitude 13. Um, so, but the, the 150 is if you if you really wanna do some deep sky and kind of mess with everything, the 150 is probably the best of both worlds, honestly, that you're gonna get. So let me just drag my calculator out of here real quick, because now we're gonna go on to, of course, what we were talking about earlier, the seven inch. Um, now this is the SkyMax 180. This is the flagship of the Cassegrain line. It's a seven inch aperture Mac. It's F15. That's a 2700 millimeter focal length. That's a lot of focal length packed into a little tiny container. Um, 20 mil, 28 millimeter eyepiece, 90 degrees, two inch star diagonal, inch and quarter adapter, nine by 50 finder. It does have the Vixen mounting foot that has quarter 20s on the bottom. Um, the ones I've used in the past, I take a universal, Los Mondi universal style dovetail, two quarter 20s up through the universal plate and that bolts to the bottom of the Vixen rail. And now you're ready to mount to larger uh, D plate mounts. Um, 
This has the rear Schmidt uh, threads as well, and this is gonna give you, um, that's right. Let me just do this real quick. Make sure we don't have a typo here. This should be 36%. I'm sorry about that. So that's a 36% difference um, in light gathering from the 150 um, at this point. So just to correct that typo there real quick. Now, the 180, we have several people using the 180 out in the world. If you're really interested in the moon, um, it does a really nice job. Um, the 180 is really contrasty. It has a very small secondary, and this is what kind of comes into play when we were comparing it to the, the Schmidt-Cassegrains earlier, which people were asking about. Um, I don't remember the spec. Let me just look this up on the back end real quick. Um, so our secondary obstruction on this telescope by area is only 5%. Um, so that's something to think about um, as opposed to uh, maybe a faster optical system. So you're gonna get more contrast out of it. Let me just look up a eight inch Schmidt-Cassegrain F10. Um, if I can find one really quick uh, and see what the secondary mathematics works out for that. But Generally, these are more contrasty than a Schmidt. Um, the smaller secondary is a big help with a lot of that. Um, let's see. So yeah, fair example right there. Um, so on a typical F10 Schmidt-Cassegrain, your secondary by area is about 9.7%. By diameter, that's a 31% obstruction. The 180 MAC is gonna give you a uh 23% obstruction by diameter and a 5% obstruction by area. So it's actually you do gain some contrast between an 8-inch Schmidt and an, a 7-inch Mac as far as contrast go. The 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 180 while it does lose out on the aperture um argument um like we said earlier, so let's do uh 8-inch versus 7-inch you're talking 31% more light to the eight just by straight physics and surface area of the mirror. But the 180 is gonna make up for that because it's got a smaller, about 5% smaller secondary by area, so you're getting more contrast um, for that. It's gonna give you that, you know, real look to it, that etched look at that point. So um, that's kind of where we are with the, the 180 calculator go away now so um but so that's that so this is a 180 shot um of the moon this was taken earlier this week by our friend richard wright he likes shooting the moon um you can see just how well that looks the contrast in there looks awesome um here's another shot from uh, robert reeves who's got one again it's a fantastic lunar telescope um uh, it really does a nice job. If you're really into the moon and planets, the 180 is just, there's not much like it in such a small package um, in our lineup. There's some bigger telescopes that will work with it, but you know, it's just something to think about there. Um, so some fun facts real quick about the SkyMax series before we jump into another one. Uh, SkyMax series have all collimatable rear cells. Um, these are the optical tube versions only. I'm not talking about the, the ones found on the AZ-GTI mount. So the 102 AZ-GTI doesn't have a collimatable cell. They're permanently set. The 127 does. Um, 
and then all of the Skymax optical tubes from the 90 to the 180 are all collimatable. However, you shouldn't need to touch it. And quite honestly, don't. Just seriously, just don't touch it. Um, you really shouldn't have to mess with it. If you do need assistance collimating, we have a write-up for it. Just email us and we can tell you about it. These do take a little bit of finesse to do. You really need to do it on a star or an artificial star or a bench. Um, there's not you the 180 is the only one that can really benefit from like the Hotec laser uh, ones the other ones are too small to do something like that so it's really best done on a star or artificial star or a bench of some kind to collimate it so but you shouldn't have to mess with a Mac it's just there if it's needed um, the 127 150 and 180 for us have Schmidt Cassegrain rear threads that means you can use the popular uh, F63 reducers from, you know, the Schmidt Cassegrain reducers. Those do work. I've tried it. Um, I can't really tell you how well they correct on the edge for like imaging and stuff like that. But I've, I have used them and for small chips, at least the ones I've experimented with, it, it does okay um, with it. But it's not a matched corrector, so you might have some issues out on the edge, but it, it works. Um, that also, the 150 and the 180 have enough clearance between the rear focuser knob um, that you could put one of those two inch Crayford dual speed focusers on the back too if you wanted to. That's also an option with the Schmidt threads. The 127 knob is too close. There's no way to thread one on there. It just doesn't have the clearance. Unless you have some kind of custom adapter made and that just depends on how much money you want to invest into a, a small telescope. Um, the 90, the 102, and 127 work great on a Star Adventure tracker. You can see right there, there's the 127. Um, the 127, you're going to need another counterweight. Um, you'd have to get another counterweight kit and just add the weight, but that makes a fun little grab-and-go setup. Just remember that it's going to be pushing it, especially on the 127. Um, it's just a great small grab-and-go setup, but... Um, it's not really an ideal imaging setup, but you could get away with it on like a bright moon or something like that. But it's a fun travel setup, so just a heads up on that one. That really does it for the SkyMax series. Uh, that's all five models. That's really everything I've got on all five models. But we don't stop there. We kind of have another one in our lineup, and that is our Mac Newtonian 190. Now that hasn't been brought in officially to the SkyMax series um, because it is a Newtonian design. So they kind of try to distinguish it separately. But because we're talking about Max, we're gonna be talking about this one today. Um, before I really go into detail about it, let's talk about the Mac Newtonian optical design first. Now, it's very similar to the Mac Cassegrain design that we talked about earlier. You've got the meniscus corrector in the front, you have a spherical primary in the back, which is different from a standard Newtonian. Standard Newtonians, as most of you know, are parabolic. These are spherical because they have that meniscus in the front. And then, of course, they just have a standard flat, you know, elliptical secondary, um, usually mounted on the back of the meniscus. So light comes in, hits the primary, goes the secondary, and then out to the focuser or whatever you're looking to do so um 
that's this particular design that's the mac newtonian right there its official name is the starlux 190 if you're looking for it that is the official name of the mac 190. Um, this is the only mac newtonian that we actually make but right now we're just talking about the mac newt um, optical design um, so the mac newtonian is a nearly perfect optical design um, and that's i'm not even saying that to like for just the 190 mac newtonian that's just in general a mac newtonian is essentially perfect and why am i saying that it addresses all the major problems that astronomers are looking for i want flat field boom no problem the the mac corrector gives you a perfectly flat field right inside um, i don't want any coma boom no problem because it is a spherical primary and it's corrected for that on the meniscus there's no coma pinpoint stars across the field and there's no color distortion so you're not having to pay a lot of extra money for exotic glass like you would for a similar sized apo refractor so a mac newtonian really addresses all the major issues that people are looking for you don't have to add any additional corrective optics to a mac newtonian um, it doesn't need a coma corrector because there's no coma um, it doesn't need a flattener because the optics flatten the field before it even gets to it. Wherever your eyepiece or camera comes to focus is the corrected field. So a Mac Newtonian design is very, very elegant way of handling all of that. But a lot of people freak out because it's a Newtonian. They don't want to deal with collimation. They don't want to mess with certain things. They like a refractor because it does, you know, whatever. So, and that's great. We love our refractors i love our refractors or any refractor for that matter they do a great job at what they're designed for but they are expensive and it's it's hard for some people to have that in their budget so uh the mac newtonian really addresses that um, a lot easier so right now skywatcher only makes one size of mac newtonian i'd like to do other ones but you know it's a limited market again people tend to favor refractors for imaging because they're just easy you don't have to mess with collimation and if you do a newtonian right you really don't have to do it that often either but the mac newtonian design gets overshadowed quite a bit from the other designs but they are out there we have our 190 we're talking about right now um explore scientific has their comet hunter the six inch mac newt um and then there's some exotic ones out there there's the like the russian intests which are very nice um there's also the saravolo mac newtonians that aren't made anymore they're beautiful telescopes um our mac newtonia is really more designed for the modern day imager it's 190 millimeter working aperture the primary is actually a full eight inch primary but the meniscus corrector actually brings it down to the 190 or seven and a half inch um uh, aperture it's f 5.3 so it's a nice thousand millimeter focal length it is a little hefty but that's what you know um actually this is the corrector and secondary for a mac 190 you can see that is a chunk of glass right there so yes it's gonna be a little bit heavy um you're running something like an eq6 or something bigger than that you know Celestron CGX, CGXL, Losmati G11, um, anything like that, solid, no problem on it. 
Um, it does come with a two inch T-ring adapter, eight by 50 right angle finder. We do give you a Vixen dovetail and the mounting rings. You can always pull that dovetail off and put a D plate on it if you wanna go bigger. We have a two inch dual speed Crayford on it and it is corrected. It has a good image circle for APS-C size sensors um, on there as well. There are topics online you might see where it's like, oh, I want the older version because it has a smaller secondary. Um, it was like 50 something millimeters. So it's a little smaller, a little bit more contrasty. Those have been out of production for ever. Uh, they're, they're really rare to come by. This telescope was intended for imaging. And a lot of people ask, why is everything intended for imaging nowadays? That's because that's where everyone's wanted to do a lot of stuff. That's just the way of the world at the moment. These work great for visual though, but they are faster than probably some other Mac Newtonians, like older school Mac Newtonians are like F6, F7, F8. Um, this one's faster, F5.3. And this is really where we have to start thinking about the advantages of a Mac Newtonian. We could make a 180 millimeter, probably a triplet, with a big old corrector in the back, and that would reduce that refractor down to f 5.4 5.3 and it would be pretty similar spec to what this would be you have a seven inch you know refractor probably f7 big old full frame reducer on the back of it that would be awesome it weighs twice the weight that this thing does and it costs probably about 15 to twenty thousand dollars for one of those so a mac newtonian allows you to get kind of this refractor-like experience with a lot less money to it. It's a lot easier to manufacture those primary mirrors, those 200 millimeter primaries, and the meniscus corrector for one of these than it is to make a triplet objective. So you're basically getting like a six inch F5, three-ish, similar performance to something like that in this telescope. And at a thousand millimeter focal length, it's great for pretty much everything out there. It's good for those galaxies, smaller nebulas, especially when you're pairing it with some of the modern day cameras that are out there, like a lot of the Canon and Nikon and Sony's. Um, and a lot of these modern day CMOS cameras that are coming out would work really well with this telescope. And at f5.3, that's really fast. So you're able to get those exposures really quickly um, at that point. So it's it's definitely fun. I'm gonna bring my calculator back here real quick, just as an example. Um, so we're looking at this section right here on exposure speed calculator. So let's say you have a refractor that's F7. That's pretty modern day refractor territory. The Mac Newtonian is F5.3. So our exposure is 74% faster at f5.3 than f7. That means your guiding has to be shorter, your exposures can be shorter, and you're taxing the mount a lot less because you're shooting with a faster optic. So in the same amount of exposures, you have a five minute exposure at f7 and one at f5.3, you're getting 74% more information in the same amount of time at f5.3, you're getting that speed. Um, Good question in there. Can you use a reducer on the 190? No, there is not a reducer available for the Mac 190 at the moment. Um, it's a corrective system already, so putting a reducer on top of a corrected optic is difficult. We'd have to come up with something very, very specific. 
um, for it. And at f5.3, it's kind of fast enough at this point. So, you know, I, I don't see there being a corrector in the future to reduce it. Um, real quick, we're going to go through just some of the details on the Mac Newtonian, then we'll do our little Q&A thing here at the end. Um, our Mac Newtonians have knife edge baffles through them that helps increase the contrast and reduce any glare um, inside it. The optics on it are also matched to each other. They're clocked um, to each other, so they line up correctly um, to give you that best images. Max New Mac Newtonians are difficult to collimate and adjust, so we've done it in a way to where you won't have to really mess with anything. You can just work on it as a typical Newtonian. Um, so one of the advantages of this particular, it's like a big refractor. It's got knife edge baffles all the way through the tube, getting rid of the glare. Um, up at the front, you might see these holes. These are actually cooling vents around the meniscus corrector. So as you have the telescope set up like this on the mount, as the heat comes out from the bottom of the tube, rises up, it actually expels out of the front of the corrector and lets the telescope cool off. Because it is a closed system, it's hard to let that cool off. Um, on the back of the 190, we have this little door. Um, it's got these two uh, thumb knobs here. These come off. This opens a vent on the back of the primary. It also has a ability to mount a um, fan on the back of it. So that is uh, another cool feature of the 190 Mac Newt. Now, this comes up a lot. I'm probably going to do a write-up on this uh, for anybody who's got one. Um, yes, I know it's dirty. This is the same corrector right here. It's a, it's a demo corrector I use for education stuff at schools and stuff. So it's got fingerprints all over it. I know that probably freaks people out that we're touching mirrors. But don't do that to your actual corrector. But this is just, that's why it's all dirty there. Don't worry about it. So... Um, on the Mac Newtonian, when you get a Mac Newtonian, you get the you open it up and there's actually going to be a cover covering this section of it. It's just a black machined cover that threads off just like the top of a peanut butter jar or something like that. Threads off. Once you thread that off, you're going to see inside of the secondary mounting assembly, there is a total of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five screws in there. Three of them are collimation screws. The other two you don't touch. Um, the three raised screws that are 120 degrees apart from each other, those are the collimation screws for the secondary. Phillips screws just make the adjustments. This screw, which is opposite the focuser, is the clocking screw. This keeps the secondary in the correct position at all times. Mac Newtonians are very critical on collimation. We've done, the engineers who designed this made it to be as easy as possible to just collimate it like a normal Newtonian as long as you don't mess with some of the stuff in there. The clocking screw on the secondary assembly sits further down than the three collimation screws. You shouldn't need to touch it ever. Please don't. The center screw, it's a mounting screw, keeps the secondary mounted to the stock of the back of the corrector there. Also a screw you don't need to mess with. So leave this one and this one alone and only mess with these three. You can collimate the secondary like a typical normal Newtonian with a laser collimator. Lastly, um, there are threads. There's an additional uh, collar in there. This is the retaining collar on the back of the secondary that keeps it all together. 
it's generally pretty tight. I would be surprised if you ever loosened it. Um, don't mess with that either. But that's how you collimate the secondary. On the back of the primary, there's three normal sets of collimation screws, Phillips screws to make the push-pull collimation of the primary. So that is how the Magnetonian works. Um, again, I'm gonna put some more information maybe in a write-up um, for that there. So, uh, but that's pretty much it. That's our SkyMax series. Um, if you really liked what you saw, go ahead and subscribe to our channel. Um, uh, if you wanna know more about stuff, uh, go ahead and email us at supportskywatcherusa.com and you can title it What's Up if you want us to take a look into a topic that we might not have done yet. So um, that's pretty much it for this week. Next week, we're doing one of my favorite topics, outreach events. Um, we're gonna talk about how to kind of plan an outreach event and you know really get something off the ground and some ideas on how to approach outreach coming out of this post-COVID apocalyptic world thing. So um, I'll let you in on some ideas that some other outreach programs I've talked to have come up with that I think are kind of cool. Um, but I'll be talking about that. This is kind of my specialty. I love doing outreach. So we'll be talking about you know how to start an outreach program of your own or ideas on how to start um, doing outreach events um, on a really effective uh, method. So that is uh, next week's topic. So right now I'm gonna open up the chat if you guys have questions. I know there's some floating around. I'm gonna go back and answer those uh, right now. And um, we'll go through and talk about those questions. If you have any more, go ahead and throw them up into the chat and I will be happy to um, get to those. So um, first question was, which go-to mount would be best uh, match for the Mac telescopes? I'm assuming and how much do they cost? Um, let me just go in order really quick. Um, if you want to go to mount, uh, the 90 millimeter would be good on like a AZ GTE or AZ GTI that we sell. Um, actually the 90 would be good. The 90, 102 and 127 will all work on the AZ GTI mount if you want to go to. Uh, the 90 is going to need some kind of L bracket um, for that because it has the quarter 20 on the bottom that there's no dovetail to mount to the side of the mount. So you will need one of those um, for the 90. The 102 and 127 have a standard dovetail that will just pop right into the, the AZ GTI's uh, saddle there. Um, for a 127, I would probably look at, you know, maybe like our EQM35, the HEQ5 would be a little big, but it would be good. Um, Celestron Advanced VX, something like that for a 127. Um, the 150 really needs the EQM35, the HEQ5 would be a better fit, or an AVX from Celestron or something in that, you know, general vicinity. Um, the 180, the 180 you could put on an HEQ5 or an AVX. I really like it on like something like a EQ6R. Um, the AZ EQ5 is, yep, someone mentioned that in the chat there. That's a good um, mount for it. Something with that 30 pound payload capacity, roughly, I would do the 180 on. It'll give you just a really rigid base for it. So the 180 is dense. Um, you know, it's a compact tube, it's, it's hefty. Um, and it's a long focal length at 2,700 millimeters. It's like squeezing a C11 into a C8 tube, um, almost. It's a lot of focal length. Um, so you want a mount that's gonna keep that 
nice and solid um, for the most part. So I would probably look at something at least like the HEQ5 or AVXs. Um, a Los Monte GM8 would be a beautiful combo um, if you're looking for something a little higher end as far as a mount goes. Um, but yeah, something in that ballpark. Um, the 190 Mac Newtonian, you can't really skimp on the mount with that one. Um, it's a longer tube, um, and you're probably using it for long exposure imaging. So an EQ6R minimum, um, something in that 40, 45 pound payload class. So like EQ6R, CGEM Mark II, CGX, um, Los Monte G11, uh, something in that arena would be a much better fit for the uh, 190 Mac Newt. So. And then, of course, the pricing and stuff like that all varies. Uh, if you want to know the pricing on the Max, it's on our website for the U.S. and Canada. Um, depending on where you're at, you want to check with your local dealer about pricing on, you know, anything uh, for that matter. Uh, the 7-inch Mac versus the 8-inch Cassegrain Schmidt. We already talked about that one. Uh, which third-party focuser motors adapt correctly for the Mac? Focuser. If none, uh, would the solution be to lock down the mirror and install a Crayford? There's no way to lock down the primaries on these. There's no lock um, at all on these. The 127, I don't know of a way. The 127 on down, I don't know of a good way to add a motor focuser to it. There's just not a lot of room to do it. There might be someone who's come up with a way, but I'm just not aware of it. The 150 and the 180 you could probably use something similar like the ZWO EAF. Uh, there might be a way to put a starlight microfocuser on the back of it. I'd have to mess with that one and experiment with it a little bit more. Um, the easiest way to do it would be to just put a third-party Schmidt Cassegrain mounted focuser on the back, a dual speed, and you could always motorize that, and then you don't have any moving mirror at that point too. So that would be kind of my opinion on the 150 to 180. And then the Mac Newtonian is just a standard Crayford dual speed that works with a ton of different motor focusers. It doesn't have the limitations that the Cassegrains do. So a little bit more to move around with. Uh, let's see. The calculator. Everyone wants to know about the calculator. Um, I came up with this calculator several years ago and it's just expanded. It's a real easy way for us to calculate all the optic specs. So whatever you see on our website, I check through here. It has all the correct uh, calculations built in. Um, you just put whatever you want in there and it pops up whatever you want. And there's conversion ones in there, um, but it makes it really helpful. That's how we can calculate all kinds of crazy stuff um, on there. I've getting some push to make this public. We'll take a look at that and maybe figure out how to put it on our website in a little bit nicer format than this but i'll i'll let you guys know but yeah you can put whatever you want in here so you know if you want to know what a 20 inch telescope does which is 500 millimeter by the way there's all your your limits limited magnitude minimum maximum theoretical magnifications all that fun stuff um so yeah it just helps a lot of calculations there so you'll see this in the future as well um, but we'll try to get it on our website see what we can do there Oh, let's see. Let's see. Have you got an update on EQ6R Pro stock in Europe? I don't handle the European market. I, I don't know where the distributors have their orders. 
I know here in the U.S. and Canada, we have stuff coming in all the time. The I'll just be the one to address this real quick because we get this a lot. The, the whole inventory stock thing is a mess. Um, and it's really far beyond even the telescope industry. I know I just bought a Canon lens. It took forever to get it because Canon's waiting for raw materials. Our factories are waiting for raw materials. I know when it comes to mounts, getting the chips that go inside the boards that make the mount work, the raw materials to make all of that for whatever reason got affected by COVID really hard. So that delays the rest of the chain. And that's that goes beyond the factories and us and all of that. So that's kind of where we're at with that. Um, at this point and that's affecting everything globally it's just it's not within the telescopes um, markets control at all um, and the other thing is so many people got involved in astronomy in the last year that a lot of places can't even keep up with the demand and so everything that's coming in is usually sold out before it gets there so if you want something anything from any major whoever it's probably best to figure out the lead time. Just place the order and be patient. That's kind of just the world we live in currently. So if you want an EQ6R in Europe, check with your local distributor and probably just place an order and be patient. The stars aren't going anywhere. I'm sure they'll be there in six months if it takes that long to get it. Just be patient. Everyone's trying really hard to get through this too. So cool. Well, I think that's it for today's webcast. Um, thank you very much for everyone who is a part of today. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, clear skies wherever you are. Um, and then we, of course, will see you next week where we'll talk about outreach, and it should be fun. Of course, at the end of the week, uh, end of the month, we have our uh, buddy Brian Cogdale from Skies Away. We're going to be talking about remote telescopes and what to think about if you want to put a remote system in. And Brian will tell us a little about the new Skies Away remote facility if you want to host um, Scope. Um, so we'll talk about that at the end of the month. So that's pretty much it. Uh, please have a safe and good weekend. We will catch you guys next week um, right here at the What's Up webcast. So thank you very much. Have a safe weekend and talk to you guys next week. See ya.